Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, the son of Satan, part one. Got a Bible with you or a phone Bible app or something to that effect. You're going to want to turn to the book of Daniel. We're going to be quite intensively so inside of that book and other places. Daniel chapter 7, if you were with us last time, we were in this book also, Dan also within this chapter. We were looking at the greatest event in the scriptures. All the scriptures point to one single event, and that event is the second coming of Christ, or the return of Christ, put it to you very plainly, the return of Christ to reign on the earth permanently. This is a, a proposition, a position of the scriptures. Like I said, every part of the scriptures points to this event. A Jewish king returning from heaven to earth, never to leave Again, it's the biggest portion of scriptures, and we went to that, chapters 7, verses 13 and 14, skipping ahead uh, through uh, a lot of history. And I don't know if you like to read the end of the book anyway. You'd like to know how it ends. Well, that's how it's going to end, but we skipped a lot of stuff here in chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at not all of it, but portions of it. And if you were here last time, I promise you that we're going to be starting to look at this guy, and we're going to probably spend two Sundays looking at this guy that we otherwise know as the Antichrist. The term Antichrist is a unique is unique to the New Testament. It's unique to only two books in the New Testament, and that would be the first, the books of First and Second John. Otherwise, this person is referred to with many different titles, thirty-three something different titles. We won't go over all of them, but uh, thirty-three something different titles, both Old and New Testament. We're going to see some of those today. The book of Daniel refers to him, does not call him the name Antichrist, even though that is a part of what he is. Multifaceted individual. And we're going to be learning and need to learn a lot about him. Uh, like I said, we skipped ahead last time in the world events to see how it ended. Now we're going to be going back and picking up some of the details. What I didn't tell you about the return of Christ and the transformation of uh, these uh, Gentile worldly kingdoms to the kingdom of God, that transformation is not going to be, um, shall we say, without some bumps. It's going to be uh, cataclysmic. It's going to be uh, global war. According to the scriptures, it's definitely not going to be smooth. It's going to be, a, on the part of Christ, a hostile takeover. And uh, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. The usurper of the throne of Christ on planet Earth will not go without a fight. I think you know who he is. He will not go. He's a very real entity. And as a result of that, like I said, it's going to be global war, global, global cataclysm. Uh, just as a as a primer, we were looking at the return of Christ last time. I didn't get any there. The Bible's very very descriptive of what that return is going to be like. In particular, it's very descriptive of the war that's going to come about as a result of his return, his his inauguration, his coronation as king, not only of the earth, of the universe, but it tells us what the invasion is going to look like. Here's what the invasion is going to look like. Speaking of Jesus, this is Revelation chapter 19. It says, and as I saw open. Behold, heaven that is, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. It doesn't give you his name because it assumes that you know. And righteousness, it says, he judges and wages war. What would it look like if God waged war against everything and everyone who is evil? And he does it with omnipotence. If you can understand that, you can understand Revelation and what's happening in the book of Daniel, in particular where we are in Daniel 7. So that's what's happening. His eyes, it says, are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, by the way, not his own. When he came first time, that was his blood. When he comes next time, it will not be his blood. And we'll, we'll see that in just a second. 
clothed with a robe dipped in blood, the armies which are in heaven, and I would suggest even though we don't have time to, to flesh it out, read that you and me and the angels. We're following him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword, that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of the God Almighty. How fierce is it? it tells us in chapter, this is chapter 19 in Revelation. Chapter 14 says that the bloodletting as a result of this winepress treading is going to be blood that runs out for the distance of 200 miles, about four feet deep. That's a lot of blood. So it's not going to be an easy transition. So just because the kingdom of heaven is going to be coming to earth, and remember, where is he leaving from heaven? He's coming to earth, and he's never going to leave again. It's got a phase one, which we know of as the millennial reign of Christ. It's got a phase two, which is the eternal reign of Christ under complete righteousness. And heaven and earth are going to be transforming that process. Lots of information we're going to be going through here. We are going to be getting down to nitty-gritty, and since it's going to be both nitty and gritty, I would recommend that you take notes. A fast note-taker, I'm going to be talking fast. And so you've got notes in front of you. I would recommend you fill those in because you need to know this individual, the Antichrist. You need to know how, what the importance he has with, within history and maybe, maybe very, very soon history. Also, I would say if I go too fast for you and it's too much for you, which it may very well be, that's okay because this sermon is going to be recorded. In fact, it's live streamed right now in case y'all don't know that. We're live streamed. So if you say hallelujah or if you pass out or whatever, it, will, it is being live streamed to other people, just so you know. And it will be on YouTube by the end of this day. So you can watch it on YouTube. You can go to our website, which is islandbaptist.org, and you can listen to it numerous times until, until you get it all. We're going to be doing at least two sermons on this topic of the Antichrist. Nonetheless, uh, why so heavy-handed? I mean, isn't Jesus the, the one who loves us and who gave his life for us? Isn't he the one who extends his hand to forgive in mercy, preferring, in preferring to forgive than judge? Isn't that true about Jesus? It most definitely is. That is the Jesus of the Bible. But we need to understand that these mercy, the mercies and graces of God and the forgiveness and kindness of God are not going to be extended forever. There is a limit to this. And when that limit is reached, then this stuff starts happening. What happens when God comes to rule in a world that hates him and he comes to do that in omnipotence? What will that look like? Today we have the option. Today there is an optional, this is the option period. You either accept Jesus or you're not. And those that reject Jesus and those that accept Jesus' life look about the same. Why isn't God judging them? Because this is not the day of judgment, but that day is coming. There will be a clear demarcation between those who stand with him and those who stand against him. And it will not be good for those who are against him. So as we said last time, make sure you're on the right side. But, but again, why, why so heavy-handed? You know, we're, we're never satisfied, aren't we? So we on the one hand say, why isn't God doing stuff? Why doesn't he stop them? Why doesn't he, if God really exists, this is one I hear all the time, if God really exists, why is it evil, evil allowed to exist? Well, because this is the day of grace. And because God, in order to judge evil, he will not just judge the symptoms. He can't just remove the evil and leave the person. He has to judge both of them. And God knowing that, and maybe you not knowing that, you need to understand, it, in order for him to come, he doesn't just deal with the symptoms. He has to deal with the actual cause. And so when he does come, it's going to be as a surgeon removing a cancerous tumor from the world, and it's going to be bad. So, and apparently really bad. So understand that, that when he does this, it's going to be with th that kind of effect. It's going to be radical. It's going to be omnipotent surgery uh, when he does it. But again, the message of the second coming of Jesus and his return and the events that surround his return dominate the Bible. 
They dominate the Bible. There are more information about the second coming of Christ than about the first coming of Jesus, like eight to one ratio as far as, so if you're unfamiliar with all this stuff or uncertain about it, you're uncertain about a large portion of scripture. You need to know this. Again, it's harder to know. The message of his first coming was much clearer to understand. Part, part of the reason why it's clear is because it's already happened. So imagine yourself in Isaiah's day, writing, pinning the words that say a virgin will conceive. How could that work, right? Well, some of the stuff that Daniel is pinning that haven't yet happened, even though seemingly weird, still God does weird stuff, okay? So let it say what it says, because God typically uses, says what he says, and he also means what he says. But the message of the second coming of Jesus dominates the Bible. Here's to what extent. Next to the subject of faith, for instance, in your New Testament. There is no greater subject as far as verbiage committed to it in the New Testament as is the subject of the discussion of the second coming of Jesus. For every mention, we saw this last time, of Jesus' first coming, prophetically speaking, in the Old Testament, there are eight mentions of his second coming. So it, it's, that's a heavy ratio, eight to one. Which one is a higher priority to God? Which one's a higher priority based upon verbiage? You got it. Jesus himself refers to his second coming 21 times in the New Testament. 50 different times in the New Testament we were told to be ready for his second coming. You tell me you don't know about the second coming of Jesus and the events that surround it? You're missing some stuff. You really are. So we need to spend some time on this, even though it is difficult, even though it's not all sweet and lovely, you don't have to go home with a warm feeling. In fact, you may go home feeling sick, and I apologize for that right now, because some of this stuff is really sickening. It really is. How can the world possibly turn out this way? Well, um... Do you believe God? Then you need to believe his scriptures and you need to heed what he says. So we know the who part of this story. Jesus, the son of God, born a Jew, died a Jew, resurrected a Jew, sitting in heaven today as a man, a Jewish man, is going to return bodily to the earth to take dominion that is already his. All authority has already been given to him. Then he's going to start exercising that authority when he comes. That's the who part of this story. Jesus, the king, is coming, and he will reign forever. The question that most people don't have that question because that's easy to come up with in the scriptures. The question that most people want to answer is the when part. When is he going to do it? I'm going to tell you today when. Are you ready? When is Jesus coming? Well, sort of. Hang on. Maybe, maybe you should think I'm a heretic and then hang on to that. Anyway, the question of when has been is a very old question. The disciples ask that question here, and Jesus sets them and me and us straight. Notice what he says. The disciples were asking him, this is right after his bodily resurrection. Surely now he's going to be king, right? I mean, he's risen from the dead. They ask a very logical question. Lord, is it, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Why is he restoring it to Israel and not to the United States? Or not to the Arab world? He's Jewish. Messiah is a Jewish title for a king. He's Jewish. It's for Israel. And if you have a problem with the Jews, you've got yourself a problem because the king that's coming is Jewish. He said to them, notice, it is not for you to know. So what I just told you, I guess, is not going to come true. Times are epics, which the Father has fixed by the dates and times. And anyone that sets the dates and times, notice, is going directly against what Jesus says. You can't know them. So if you've got some Yahoo out there saying he knows a date and time, you know for certain it's not going to be on that date or time. Kind of like me picking stock market. If I pick a stock, you can be certain that that one's not going to make money. You can cancel that one off. 
Same thing is true. If you pick a date, you can be certain it won't be on that date. Because Jesus says, you're not going to know the dates. You're not going to know the time. So the simple answer to the question of when is it ain't over till it's over. Or, if you have to ask, this isn't it. Because when it comes, you won't have to ask. A, maybe more, a, better, a better answer based upon what we're reading here is, if you have to ask, didn't you just hear what Jesus said? It's not for you to know the dates and times. Nevertheless, there is a lot that we can know about the times, if you will. Jesus told his disciples, can you not look at the seasons and tell when fall or spring is coming? Can you not look at the clouds and tell it's about the rain? So he says it will be about the coming of the Son of Man. You're not going to know a date per se. You're not going to know a time per se. But the seasons and the situations, he says, you can look at these things and know that things are drawing closer. And so there is a lot given to us in the scriptures that goes a long way to answering this when question about the second coming of Jesus. For instance, when we can know because we're studying the book of Daniel, right? You're in Daniel chapter 7. We've been in Daniel chapter 2 about a month and a half ago. We can know, first of all, from Daniel 2 that Jesus isn't returning until after the rise and the fall of four major world-dominating kingdoms, namely uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. They're given to us in Daniel 2 as according to the prophecy of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpretation of that dream. Secondly, we can know... That Jesus isn't returning until after the final form of that final kingdom. That final kingdom is important you understand has a phase one, the ancient Rome that you know, and a phase two, the future Rome that is coming. The Bible states this both Old and New Testament. I don't know how Rome's going to come together. Please don't ask me. I don't know the answers to that. All I can tell you is I believe the Bible. Do you believe the Bible? That's going to get you through a lot of stuff here. And that, there's stuff here that you're just going to have to believe. I'm sorry. I have no explanation for it. All I can tell you is it's what the Bible says. Daniel 2 tells us about this final form, as does Daniel 7. Notice, as the toes of those feet. Now, this was a statue, remember, made up of four different kinds of metals. At the bottom, the metals began to be mixed with what, what he said was clay, which, of course, metal and clay don't mix. Thus, they were not mixing. But nonetheless, the statue was standing on top of clay and iron at the same time. The toes, by the way, the statue is humanoid, so it had a head, it had shoulders, it had arms, it had waist, it had legs, it had feet, it had toes. How many toes would that be? How many toes you got? You want to take off a shoe to see? You got, I had a friend that had 11, so don't laugh. No kidding, he had 11. 10 toes. That doesn't say there's 10 here, but we can assume there's 10. It's probably a pretty safe assumption. It's going to be important for later. Notice. The toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery or clay. So some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. Two verses later, verse 24, it says, In the days of those kings, now wait a minute, what kings? Not been a single king mentioned in the entire chapter 2 up until this point. Well, Daniel's assuming, or the interpreter, God himself is assuming you understand these toes represent kings. How many toes? How many kings? It's an assumption. We don't know. It doesn't say ten. But Daniel's, Daniel 7 is going to nail this down for us. In the days of these kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's speaking of Jesus' kingdom. It was symbolic of a stone that came and crushed the statue at his feet, if you will remember, in Daniel 2. And that kingdom, it says, will not be left to, for another people. It will crush and put to an end to all these kingdoms, and they blow away, it says, like chaff there. Well, this second, again, we can know that Jesus isn't coming until after the final kingdom, Roman kingdom, the final phase of that kingdom, 
as we're going to see, the final ruler also of that kingdom. Shadowing Daniel 2 is Daniel 7. They go right together all the way through Daniel 7, verses 1 through 7. And then following that, they start filling in the blanks that Daniel 2 didn't fill in for us. They're, they're paralleled. I'm going to put a graphic up on the screen. Don't get distracted by it. It's a really cool thing. I didn't make it up. It's from the, from the internet, which is where all good stuff comes from, right? On the left, you have Daniel 2, the image of this statue. Gold head, silver arms and chest, bronze waist, legs made out of iron, feet made of iron and clay representing these four major kingdoms. Shadowing that is Daniel 7, except in this case, the idioms just change. It's the same kingdoms. There's a lion, a bear, a, a leopard, and this indescribable beast. Let's read about them, and then we'll get on to what our real main topic is, which is this dude called the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, the first year of Belshazzar. King of Babylon, remember that makes Daniel about 70 years old. I saw in the dreams and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, Daniel did. He wrote them down, the dream down, and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in the visions of my, by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea is symbolic of the Gentile world, the sea masses of people. From the four, the, and four great beasts were coming up from this masses of people, four world Gentile ruling nations. Different from one another. The first, it says, was like a lion, and the wings like an eagle. I kept looking while, until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, second one, that was rep representing Babylon, right, the head of gold. Then the second one is going to be like a bear. It says, behold, a beast, the second one resembling a bear, was raised up on one side. This was both the Medes and the Persians. The Persians were stronger than the Medes, and symbolic of that. And again, people have a problem with Daniel, because Daniel seems to describe future events very accurately. That's, that's what prophecy is, by the way, real prophecy. Everybody else is just blowing smoke. They have a problem with Daniel, because they say there's no way Daniel could have written this after the fact, or before the fact. It had to have happened after the fact. Again, the problem with that, if that's your position, is that we have copies of Daniel that predate a lot of this stuff by at least 200 years. So it's out the window. Daniel did it somehow, and I would suggest to you he did it by the hand of God. Only God can take together all the contingencies of the world and still call future just like it was past. And so that's what happens in this prophecy. This beast raised up on one side has, has uh, ribs in its mouth, which represent we don't have time to mess with, but nonetheless, uh, it's good stuff. And thus they said, arise, devour much meat. The, the, the Persian kingdom was the first... Uh, the first king, in the, in the case of Babylon, the, Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant strategist and he took a very small army and he defeated the Assyrians and he defeated much larger armies, the Assyrians and the Egyptians by, by amazing strategy. He was just really good. He was fast, which is represented by these wings that are on the back of this lion. But in the case of the Persian kingdom, they were not like that. They were not fast at all. They were the first kingdom to, to, to field a greater than million man army. Bear is way slower than a lion, especially a lion with wings on its back, right? But when a bear gets there, you're in trouble. When a million men show up on your field to fight you, you got problems. That's what happened during the Persian kingdom. They were tough. The next kingdom's not going to be like that. They're going to be extremely swift. Notice verse 6. After this, I kept looking. This is the Greeks. And behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings, not just two, but four. Super speed, the Greeks. And on his back were the wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Alexander the Great led the Greek armies. He conquered everything from Greek, Greece all the way to the Indus River in India, and he did it before he was 31 years old, and then he died of alcohol poisoning because he could conquer the world, but he could not conquer himself. 
And we all know what that's like, right? right. Uh, if you've never been controlled by sin or anything that comes from sin, sin is controlling, and that's what happened to him. So, but his kingdom was split up in four different directions to four generals, which is the picture of this head. Again, four heads here. People have a hard time with Daniel because they think Daniel must have written after the fact. He did not. He did not. God inspired this. So we're really interested in the final kingdom here, verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. Remember what that, the legs were made out of? Iron. Notice what it says this beast's teeth are made out of. Large iron teeth. So it ties us directly to this vision in chapter 2. It devoured, crushed, trampled down the remainder, that is, of these other kingdoms. And it was different from all the beasts that were before, and it had... Ten horns. How many toes on the statue? How many horns on the beast? They're parallel up until this point. These got goes together. Different idioms, but they're speaking of the same thing. Then we're headed into the next thing. So the kingdom of Christ, listen, follows four Gentile kingdoms, follows the final phase of the final kingdom, part two, if you will, of Rome. And it follows the final ruler of that final phase, this guy that we otherwise know as the Antichrist. Are you ready to be introduced to him? That's what's going to happen from verse 8 and the remainder of chapter 7, really the remainder of the book of Daniel. He's going to be talking about the events that surround and the things this guy's going to do. So let's be introduced to him, this final king, the Antichrist, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, remember there's ten of them, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. So we've gone from 10 minus 3 equals 7. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth uttering great boasts. What in the world is this? Well, I'll just tell you ahead of time, it's the Antichrist. That's not the way we come up with answers. But, but if you go very far, you're going to find out that's who we're talking about. Skip down to verse 20. You're going to get the answer to who this guy is. It says, in the meaning of the ten horns... And that were on its heads, and the other horn which came up among them before which three, were, three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which were larger in appearance than its associates. Verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom come ten kings. Well, what did he say about the toes? Call them kings. What did he say about the horns? Call them kings. So it's going to start with ten. It's going to end with seven because this one of these ten kings is going to be the guy we know of as the Antichrist. He's pushing three out. He becomes, the remainder becomes seven, and he becomes the head of all of them. This is a scenario that you're given in the book of Daniel. This is a scenario you're given in the book of Revelation. And by the way, if you want to understand Revelation, Daniel is the primer to it. You have to understand Daniel before you can ever think about getting into Revelation because Revelation assumes you know everything about Daniel. It won't make sense any other way. So and he says, and another will rise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. A guy that we know of, like I said, we call him the Antichrist. Revelation 17 tells us that this king is one of these final ten, like I said, but he becomes one of the seven, and he's the leader of the seven of the remainder of, in this final phase, he's the final king of the final phase that has to happen before Christ returns. Revelation 6, we see him typified as a rider on a white horse. If you're familiar with Revelation, you need to read it, but you need to read it about a thousand times and then keep reading it, and then Daniel and other things. Revelation chapter 6 shows, typifies this Antichrist, this coming world ruler, this final king of the final phase, he, this, this little horn as he's referred to there. Uh, it typifies him or it demonstrates him as a rider on a white horse holding a bow, but no arrows. Of what good is that? You tell me you got a gun, but it's not loaded. 
How's that going to help you? Tell me you got a car that's got no gas. How's that going to help you? Tell me you got gasoline but no car. Tell me you got arrows but no boat. Tell me you got bullets but no gun. I mean, you got to have both of them to go, right? How is it possible that this guy comes as a conqueror with no arrows? Here's how he does it. He does it because it shows us both Old and New Testament that this, this, this person, this individual we know as the Antichrist, is going to be a schmoozer. You know who a schmoozer is? You've been to a used car, used car lot, you've come across a schmoozer. This guy's going to be a politician par excellence. It tells us in 11, Daniel 11, 21, this, he shall come in peaceably and obtain king, the kingdom by flatteries. That's what you otherwise, is what the Bible refers to as politics. It's politics. He's kissing up. He's telling you a bunch of stuff that you want to know, not just us, but everybody. He's lying to all of them. He's brown-nosing all of them. Propaganda and politics. Just as an example, this past century, Hitler, by the way, who if you want to study what the Antichrist is, he's a good picture of him. He's dead and gone. We know he's not the Antichrist, but people thought he was because he was doing a lot of stuff the Bible said the Antichrist would do. One of the things that he did that the Antichrist will do on a global scale is that he did a lot of politics and propaganda. Just based on politics and propaganda, he took the countries of Czechoslovakia and Austria. Never fired a shot. Now, that's just two countries in Eastern Europe. The, the, the Antichrist, this guy, is going to be taking the whole world like this. Comes in peaceably. Comes in with flatteries. He's a master politician. It's very important that you understand this, that that's who he is. This guy is a political genius. He's also a problem solver. Daniel 9 tells us. Daniel has a lot to say about this guy. Daniel 9 tells us that this guy is going to solve the problem in the Middle East. What's the problem in the Middle East today? Depends on who you're talking to. You talk to the Arabs, they say it's the Jews. You talk to the Jews, they're going to say who? The Arabs, in particular, the Muslims, right? This guy's going to solve the problem. It tells us in Daniel 9 that he's going to solve the problem. He's going to create peace in the Middle East for seven years. We've been 60 years or more that Israel's created as a state. There's not been a year, much less a month, hardly, that there has been peace in that place. He's going to create a seven-year gap in which there's going to be no war, except he's going to end it early. But it's not going to be because of the opposing sides. He's going to broker this peace. So he's going to be a major problem solver. He's going to be a political genius. He's going to be an intellectual genius. He's going to be an oratorical genius. Look at verse 8, Daniel, again, 7. Daniel 7, verse 8. This little horn, it says, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. It's got a big mouth, and it's going to say it again in verse 25, if you'll take a look. And he will speak out, it says, against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. So he's got this mouth. It tells us again the same thing in Revelation 13, 5. This guy is going to be a speaker. He's going to be amazing. Again, Hitler was a great speaker. A lot of the world leaders who have gone bad have been amazing speakers, very charismatic. So is this guy. He's going to be a politician. He's going to be a problem solver. He's going to be an oratorical genius. He's going to be a military genius. Now, he comes in peaceably, but he's not going to be peaceful from that point on. Look at verse 23 of verse 7. You're with me? Everybody falling asleep? It's okay if you do. Really, I don't. You know, you're going to sleep. You say, well, I'm not going to come. I hear people say, I'm not going to come to church. I was too sleepy. Well, sleep in church. I have. Right? You know, at least you came, you know, you tried. Sometimes I know life happens. I mean, Saturday nights are rough and weekends are rough, especially where we live. I mean, a lot of people make their money on Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays. So anyway, glad you're here. Verse 23, Daniel 7. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the others. 
and it will devour the whole earth, tread it down and crush it. Doesn't sound like peace to me, does it to you? Definitely is not. Like I said, the only peaceful part of this guy is him coming to power, and then after that, peace is going to be removed. In fact, it says that very clearly in, in Revelation. I notice I'm going back and forth in Revelation to, to uh, Daniel because these two things are inter, interwoven, almost as if they were written at the same time, even though there's a 400-year gap between them. Revelation 6 tells us that after the coming of this world leader, peace is removed from the earth, and as a result of the removal of this peace, one quarter, here's what it says, of humanity, the world population is going to die. One-fourth. So we're 7.5 billion today. If that happened today, that's 1,875,000,000 people dead. And by the way, this is not a long period of time that this takes place. The worst cataclysm, by the way, that's happened on planet Earth have been the bubonic plague and the Second World War. Both cases we lost between 75 and 80 million. But when this guy comes, if he came today, and peace is removed from the earth as a result of the stuff that he does, 1,875,000,000 people, if it happened today, would die. To give you an idea of how big that is, that's bigger than the whole country of China, the whole population, plus 500 million. That's a lot of people. One in four. You want to do a little exercise? Let's, let's number off. You ready? One, two, three. You're dead. One, two, three, dama, adios. One, two, three, sweetie. I'm glad you're getting baptized today. Adios. One, two, huh? Three, I'm taking your wife. Four, you're dead. Yeah, you, know, you see, we've gone through a very small number here, and we've, we've already killed four or five people. So if we took this whole room, the room is not, we're not at 200 capacity, but if we were capacity, this room is capable of seating comfortably 200 people. That would be 50 folks of the 200 dead. The, the population of South Padre Island, the voting population is only 2,000 people. You want to know how many people will live here? Now, we can, we can sleep 150,000, but we actually only vote 2,000. That would be 500 South Padre Island, you're from a city of 20,000, that's 5,000 dead. Globally, who buries all these people, by the way? See, what, I, what you've got here is you're going to have three people burying one, three people burying one, three people burying one, three people burying one. What do you do with all these people? I mean, it's a, it's a global problem. I mean, it's a massive problem. And, the, and by the way, the limit of this guy's tenure is just three and a half. He just does all this in three and a half years. So it's not the bubonic play that lasted for... I don't know, 75 years. It's not the Second World War that was more than 15, 15 years, roughly. It is, it is a very quick... Anybody seen the movie Purge? I wouldn't recommend it. But guys, the Bible predicts a purge, and a very evil one, in fact. As a result of famine and of war and of pestilence, one quarter of the population early on dies. Less than three and a half years. So adding to this list anyway, so he's a, a, a political strategist, he's, a, he's a, uh, a military strategist, a military genius, he's also a commercial genius. And this is the stuff he's best known for, probably the stuff you're most familiar with. Commercially what he's going to do, he's going to enable us to buy and sell in a way that we haven't yet been able to do. In fact, we're capable of it today, the technology's there today. It says in the Revelation chapter 13 that he's going to require... All those who follow him, which, by the way, is going to be 100%, except for the fact if you stand up against him, you're, you're going to get fired, if you know what I mean, because he's going to have your head. You're going to do it at the expense of your life. He's going to require that all who follow him receive a mark on their hand, it says, or on their forehead. 
And it's from this that they're going to be able to buy and sell. And apart from this, they cannot do it. Do you know we have that technology today? Anybody have a pet that's chipped? That's just an electronic chip they put inside your pet. It's not electronic, but it's a, it's a computer chip that allows them to scan it and it tells who it belongs to. I've got two pets that are that way. You can't get them from the shelter unless you get them that way. Do you know that they're chipping our kids? It's not a bad idea, by the way. It's not, a mark, it's not the mark of the beast, per se. But if your child is abducted or gets lost, they can track your kid from a satellite, even underground. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good and bad because then, then I can be tracked from a satellite. I mean, I kind of don't want that. But what, what this guy's going to set up, he's going to set up a system where I, all my information is in that chip. My bank accounts, my credit card. By the way, it's great because identity theft it means you have to steal me. You know, because it's there. I can't lose this credit card. I can't lose my license anymore because the cop just says, run, run your license. I'll stick my hand out the window. You follow what I'm saying? So, by the way, it's there. We already have the technology. I'm not saying that it's going to be this technology. I don't see anybody on the global horizon that I would say he or she is the Antichrist. You may have already picked one out for yourself, but keep it to yourself. But, but definitely at least, uh, at least something that could say that this could happen just 50 years ago, by the way, guys preaching like me and you sitting in audiences are scratching our head as to how possibly someone can do this. Not anymore. It's the technology's there. We've got it. But this guy is going to form the world's markets to the place where they're all having to do this. He's going to be a, a commercial genius. And of course, part of this mark has to do with who he is. It's a mark of his name, which as we know, the big number 666, right? Come back next week, we're going to talk about that number. Added to the list, though, of commercial genius, he's going to be a religious genius. Because this one who, who is both a religious genius, I mean, this commercial genius, is going to be very interested in people's worship. Look at verse 25. Speaks out, it says, against the Most High. Why? Because he's going to claim to be God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us he's going to take the seat in the temple, which is in Jerusalem, claiming to be God. He's not going to be against God. Antichrist doesn't mean against. It means in place of. In, pla- in, our, in our culture and language, anti means I'm against. I'm anti this and I'm anti that. In the Greek culture, by the way, which your New Testament was written in, which the word antichrist comes out of, it means in place of. He's just simply going to replace. He's not against Jesus. He's going to claim to be Jesus. He's going to be pulling off a lot of stuff that, that he at least going to seem that Jesus did, in, including his own personal resurrection, which is, I believe, going to be faked. But uh, when it happens is when we'll truly know. But nonetheless, he's going to display himself as being God. Revelation 13 said he's going to set, him, set his image up to be worshipped on pain of death if you don't worship it. The image is even going to have the power to speak. I mean, how is that possible that a metal image is going to have the power to speak? The final major characteristic of this king is his persecution of the Jews. So the seventh major characteristic we find both Old and New Testament is the fact that he's going to be persecuting the Jews. Look at Daniel chapter 7 verse 21. And I kept looking, Daniel seeing this vision, and that horn, the Antichrist, was waging war against the saints and overpowering them. It says the same thing in the New Testament, Revelation 13, 7 says the same thing. Who are the saints? Think of Christians, right? When was Daniel written? 500 years before there was ever a Christian. Daniel always thought of, Christ, of saints being Jews, and that way he was accurate in thinking that. Saints doesn't mean saintly. When I say so-and-so is a saint, if I say this man or that person is a saint, what am I saying about them in our culture? They're nice people, they're sweet people, they're godly people, right? And maybe they are, maybe according to our estimation, according to the Bible, that it's not the definition of a saint. The definition of a saint may, may very well be that they're not very saintly in the sense of the way they act or speak. It may have everything to do with what God has done with for them. Saint just simply means to be set apart. 
The Jews are definitely saints in the sense that they are set apart as God's people. Whether they want to be or not, whether they like him or not, whether they believe it or not, they're still set apart as God's people and they have a special purpose and longevity uh, due to that. But to be a saint in this case definitely is not speaking about Christians. It's speaking about the Jews. And it's definitely directed at the Jews. It says that there's coming a persecution of the Jews unlike any other, including the persecutions of the Holocaust of this past century. In Jeremiah, it's called, the, this time of trouble is called Jacob's trouble. Revelation chapter 12, it shows the Jews fleeing into the wilderness. Uh, just as an example of Jesus, by the way, Jesus was American. Now he was a Jew. He prophesied in New York City. Now in Jerusalem. He has the title of a president. No, he's got the title of Messiah. It was the title of a Jewish king. He resurrected as an American. No, he resurrected as a Jew. A Jew speaking to Jews, listen, says this in Matthew 24. The whole context is Jewish. And we read Matthew 24 and we think as Gentiles. And you need to stop that because this is not directed at Gentiles per se. Notice, those who are in Judea, speaking of this event, when this persecution is inaugurated by this Antichrist. Those who are in Judea, where is Judea? It's a suburb of Port Isabel, right? No, it's in the Middle East, guys. It's where the Jews get their name from. They are Jewish. It's from Judea. It's from the land or the tribe of Judah. All these names go together. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. That's a specific place. That's to the east for them. We don't have any mountains. Well, I guess we do in Mexico. But that's not where we are. Whoever is in the field, apparently in Judea, must turn back to get, and that's not dirt, turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant. Pray that your flight will not come in the winter because it's cold, right? Or on the Sabbath. Why would the Sabbath matter to a Gentile? Doesn't. We don't have Sabbath. The Jews specifically are very, they're cloistered on Sabbath day. Their lights are out. Their doors are closed. The, the, if you're familiar with 1973, the Yom Kippur War happened on a very specific Sabbath. And the reason why the Arabs ta- attacked on that day because they knew the Jews would have their radios turned off. They'd be cloistered inside their homes. They knew that they could get the advantage on them. They nearly did. And of course, the Jews got it back. But nonetheless, the, the Israelis got it back. The Sabbath is a bad day to get attacked on. It's a bad day. Pray that it doesn't happen, he says. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now and nor ever will be, including the Holocaust of the 40s and the 50s, or the 30s and the 40s in Eastern Europe. So, wow, talk about saying a lot. In fact, it tells us in Zechariah chapter 13 that there's going to be two-thirds of the Jews in the land of Israel who are not going to make it. That's bad. I will, it will come about in, that, in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. It doesn't sound like it's people, but it is. Watch. And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them, it says, as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. So today in Israel, there's roughly 6 million Jews. So if it happened today, 4 million Jews lose their lives. That's a lot. Be unthinkable, except for the fact that Hitler just killed 6 million of them, what, 60 years ago. So uh, it's not unthinkable, but as best I can tell, it's going to be far worse than what Hitler ever did. So I don't know what the number is, per se. We can just definitely say it's going to be super bad to be a Jew in that day. Super bad. So anyway, thankfully, back to Daniel 7. This guy's time is limited. Take a look down at verse, uh, verse 25. We didn't read it all. He will speak out against the Most High, this Antichrist, and wear down the saints of the highest one, 
And he will intend to make alterations in times and laws. And notice, it will be given to him to do this stuff. They will be given into his hands for notice how long. Time, times, and half a time. We don't have time together to discuss what that actually, how this actually means three and a half years. But you're just going to have to take my word for it. It means three and a half years. We know that because of what it says here. We know that because of what it says in other places. For instance, in Daniel chapter 12, which is just, you know, six, five chapters later, it tells us the exact number of days, 1,290 days, which is exactly three and a half years plus a month. It tells us in Revelation chapter 12, it's going to be 42 months. If you do the math, how long is that? Three and a half years. This guy's only going to be working for three and a half years. The world's going to come to a violent end as a result of the stuff that he does, and as a result of the return of Jesus Christ at the end of it. The most documented period of time in the Bible, including Jesus' first coming and the whole creation epic of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, the most documented period of time in the Bible is this three and a half years that the Antichrist is going to be ruling. Why is that? I don't really know. I'm just telling you. That's the way it is in the scriptures. The Bible holds this out as a very important time. Something, do, you need to, do you need to understand what the Bible says? Yes. Well, the most documented period of time is this final three and a half years. You need to know it. You need to understand it. So back to the original question. When will Jesus return? Here we, we, can, we can come up with some conclusions, at least to a large, to a, in a large sense. Not until the Gentile kingdoms have come and gone. Not until the final form of the final kingdom of those Gentile kingdoms has come and gone. Not until the final ruler of that final kingdom has come and carried out his final persecution against the Jews. Do you feel all warm and fuzzy? Yeah, me neither. This, this, this event that's coming, these things that are being prophesied, they're scary, aren't they right? They're, they're sobering. They're like, wow, how could this possibly happen? Or again, I remind you, that the, the readers of the Old Testament, as they were looking forward to the coming of the first coming of Christ, couldn't make a lot of sense out of a lot of the literal things that were being said there. For instance, I'm Isaiah, and I'm writing in the book that a virgin is going to conceive. Can't be literal, right? It was. You read a lot of these things, and you say, well, this, these things can't be literal. They've got to be figurative of something else, something less. And I would say you have no precedent for that kind of interpretation in the Bible. The precedent is to say whatever it says is what's going to happen, even though it's beyond your imagination, even though it's fanciful and uh, seemingly way out there. You just need to let it be out there. What do we need to get from this? We need to get a fire underneath us. This is really coming. This is really coming. And, and, and by the way, it's not coming for the church. It's not coming for those who've trusted Christ as personal Savior. So that's the first question we need to ask. H- have you chosen a side? There's going to come a day in which it's not going to be, be able to choose if you've chosen a side, we live in an age of grace. Read that the age of choice. You have a choice to make. God's son, Jesus Christ, has died, has bled, has resurrected, proving that he is the Savior, not some talker, some teacher out there that's claiming all kinds of stuff. No, he offers himself because he is the living Lord as the one who rescues, forever living, it says, to, to draw to God those who come to God through him, ever living to save them. He is the Savior. The question is, is he is he your savior? See, in order to be your savior, you've got to cross a line in which you just don't acknowledge him as savior. How are you better than the devil? The devil knows he's the savior. So you know he's the savior, but you never accept him as your personal savior. You've got a problem. Something you need to do. Decision you need to make. The Bible says simply believe. 
to as many as believed in his name, it says, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer comes down and kneels down before him. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust him. The one who is king, the one who is sovereign, is also the savior, the forgiver, the one who accepts. No matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've done. Oh, you don't know what I've done, pastor. No, I don't. And I would say just in my personal life, I don't want to know. I mean, tell me your stuff, but, but really, I, I know way more about people than I want to know. I do know this. I know the Savior who knows all your stuff. He already does. And he died knowing what you would do, knowing who you are, and he offers you salvation right where you are. Even while we were yet sinners, it says in Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. Even when we were enemies of God, Jesus gave his life for us. How much more if he did that while you were against him, if now you come to him, how much more will he accept you? No, the gate is open for that. Indeed it is. But it needs a lot of fire under us because we need to make a decision about Christ. It also needs a lot of fire under us because we need to make a decision about our own personal self. So, so you know Christ is personal savior. You're looking out at a world that's headed to hell and you're doing nothing. How can you do that? How can we do that? How, how can we not be, as Paul said of himself, we are ambassadors of Christ, pleading that the world be reconciled to God. Because God has already reconciled himself to the world through his son, Jesus. God has already reconciled himself. There is already a peace covenant out there. There's already a treaty, and it's not the treaty you're going to offer him. It's the peace treaty of God. Why, why are we not out there telling them about this? You see, since this is coming, Jesus said to the disciples, flee the wrath that is to come. You believe Jesus? There's a wrath coming. People need to flee it. We have a responsibility. I want to ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes as we contemplate the things that God said to us today. Some weird stuff, and we're going to be doing a little bit more weirdness next time. But important stuff, some very real stuff. See, despite what we think, things are not going to be honky-dory. They're not going to be okay. Things are not going to work out, and the world's not going to get better. The world's getting worse, and if you've not lived long enough to see that, just wait. You will see it. See, Jesus knows that. He knows where it's heading. And he knows what our sin has done to us, and he knows where our sin will send us. And that's why he did what he did. That's why the Father sent the Son, is because there was no other way. So I hope today, if you've known Jesus to be the Savior, but you've never known him as your Savior, that you would make a decision today. The Bible says there has to come a point in time in your life in which you have a personal encounter with the Savior, in which you believe on him to be your Savior. It says to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Call upon him today. And for those of us who have already done that, who already know him as personal Savior, I pray that a fire would be lit, lit under us. How can we be quiet when we know that God says what he means and means what he says? How serious ought we to be about sharing our faith, giving our testimony to those who do not know him? The work is God's. It's not your job to save anybody. Not your job to convince anyone. It's just your job to share. That's a successful encounter. God, I pray that our hearts would be changed before us as we consider these very serious items. We look at scary individuals like the antichrist who you already have overcome but we still live in a world in which history's got to play out and so god we have a purpose and a place here as your ambassadors a purpose and a place as your children as your servants god i pray that whatever's not serious about us about what's going on and where we're headed would change 
our hearts and focus towards you would change our hearts and focus towards your word would change our respect towards you god would change and it would change the way we act and think and speak thank you so much god for teaching us help us to learn help us to fall deep within us where it can be used for your kingdom we pray these things in jesus name amen thanks for visiting find us at www.islandbaptist.org